This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. On Friday's show, Miriam Cates and the New Conservatives are here to make Britain great again. We'll investigate the new darling of the right. Plus Zuckerberg versus Musk. With Twitter circling the drain and Instagram about to launch its rival, Threads. Is this the end for Elon Musk's $44 billion albatross? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, streaming platforms are deleting films and TV series as tax write-offs. What does the bursting of the streaming bubble mean for culture? Let's meet the panel. Marie Leconte is a columnist and author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. Hi, Marie. Hello. Um, So we talk about destroying the internet later. The nation has been gripped by the tragic story of Mr. Nigel Farage and his disappearing bank accounts. Um, Mm. It turns out that he might not have told the whole truth. No, I know. It's incredible. I'm shocked and astounded. uh, An oversight. What happened in reality? It's one of those, I'm still not entirely sure is the, the entire story, but basically he sort of came out uh, saying that Coots was closing his account and that no one wanted to give him a bank account because, you know, because he's Nigel Farage and he's just too handsome and clever and everyone's jealous or something along those lines. Um, and yeah, and then it turns out that actually that's not what happened. It's just that you need to either make one million pounds in investment with Coots or have three million in savings, I believe, to have an account there, neither of which he had or was doing. So Coots offered um, him to open an account with NatWest instead because NatWest uh, owns the bank. Um, and yeah, and that was that. But, but, but again, because I'm still not sure is that the entire story? Who knows? Well, obviously, journalists and MPs failed to do basic fact-checking on his story, uh, although they ran with it for several days. What I don't understand is how, even as a conspiracy theory, this makes sense, that that banks would collectively gang up on Farage seven years after Brexit (laughs) when he is of no political importance, and the idea that the most woke of all is coots. Like, I, did you, do you understand why people kind of were so willing to embrace this idea that banks were persecuting Brexit has-beens? So weirdly you say that, but actually I did notice, because he coots is on the Strand in London, uh, their main offices, and they had, like, hand on heart this year, the biggest pride flag thingy I have ever seen any brand do. Like, it was truly gigantic, to the point that it was quite funny, but the same as, like, <laughs> is is coots work? <laughs> like, it was such a weird... But anyway, no, beyond that, yeah, I, I, I love the idea that actually it's just that the banks don't have the internet they're just very slow to the news so like they've only got to brexit now and then oh god um but no i i don't know i think the weird thing as well is like nigel farage clearly seems and i'm not for legal reasons saying that he is but he has the vibe of someone who might be a bit dodgy so i feel like you know him going oh well you know the banks don't want to lend to me for no reason like surely the first reaction to anyone is going could that be because you have the vibe of someone who is a bit dodgy? Well, like, yeah, if I saw went around going, I've been banned from Sainsbury's, I think some people would think, what have you done in Sainsbury's? Yeah, no, exactly. That, that's kind of what they I wouldn't mean. wouldn't think, like, poor you. you. That? Yeah. Hmm. Um, who knows? Uh, let's hope he gets his NatWest account soon. Zoe Grunewald is a political reporter at The New Statesman. Hi, Zoe. Hello. Last week, you wrote about the resignation of Zach Goldsmith. Now, I was wondering about this. Is it just, because there's always like the Westminster factional lens and then the real world lens, 
Um, and considering I'm recording two days after the Earth's hottest day on record, do you put it down just to sort of Johnsonite rancor, or does the allegation that Sunak simply doesn't give a shit about the environment carry some weight? Has there been now, I suppose we've had a few days, has that actually made an, an impact? Is anybody stepping forward to go, no, 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 he really does care very much about our planet? No, I don't think Sunak cares as much about um, the climate as certainly Zach Goldsmith does. Um, so, you know, we've already seen that Sunak's rolling back this 11.6 billion of climate aid. Um, he had to be dragged kicking and screaming um, to some degree to cop last year. And, you know, when we saw the uh, conservative hustings last year, Net zero was a huge point of contention because it's not very popular with the membership and it's mm. not very popular with lots of people on the right of the party. So it's certainly not a priority of Sunak's. The timing is obviously suspect. He, he resigned the day after the Privileged Committee report. He made some valid points, but I think what was quite unfortunate is um, by Sunak not coming down so hard on Goldsmith and the other MPs who were named in the report, he left himself open to this kind of thing happening where... A peer in this case, Lord yeah. Goldsmith, was able to resign, cite personal disagreements with the Prime Minister and his policies and sort of distance himself from the Privileges Committee report. I think if Sunak had come down much harder and said, you know, these people need to publicly apologise, it would have made Goldsmith look more petty. But actually, he's managed to leave on his terms with right. a firing shot at the Prime Minister. You know, it's kind of irrelevant why he resigned now. He's able to say, I resigned over the climate. It's sort of win-win-win for Goldsmith. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he still gets to be a very wealthy lord at the end of the day. So, Well, that's good. I, I was really, <laughs> need more of that. I was really worried about yeah. that. Our guest this week confounded MPs and wonks alike for years with a secret Tory Twitter account. Uh, most people realised it was a parody, but the level of detail led many to believe that he had some insider knowledge. In fact, it was Henry Morris, an ultramarathon runner, personal trainer and rave promoter, whose previous work includes a much-missed parody of Frank Mansoir MP. Hi, Henry. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? How are you doing? I was, uh, I was a big fan of the, uh, the Mansoir uh, Twitter account. Why did you start? Where did you start Secret Tory? I, I, I was bored in my gym one day and um, I, <laughs> looking for something to do. I was at a loose end, so I, there it is. I started up. And did um, which kind of people thought that you were actually a Secret Tory? Well, I mean, it, it was really interesting because obviously I was just throwing lots of nonsense out there, but then people people who want to dislike Tories fell, fell for it quite easily because it's feeding their confirmation bias. But, I mean, I had a good spat with Simon Clark. Um, Leigh Anderson and Brendan Clark-Smith were very salty when I revealed who I was, so I'd clearly been uh, riling them. Marc Francois um, was uh, adamant he knew. I, it, my mole at Basildon Council says he was obsessed with the account because I knew so much about him because I, I was saying he lived in a, in a five-bed uh, detached at the end of a cul-de-sac in Essex and he drove an ice white range over Revoke around the M25 to unwind after work. And uh, Francois was, um, he, he couldn't work out how someone had worked out so much about him. But I mean, yeah. Well, he's a very complicated man with, with depths that are hard to plumb. So congratulations. <laughs> exactly. How uh, did I get there? And I also didn't realise until you, you, you came out uh, that you were the uh, alleged UK correspondent for the Papua New Guinea Courier, which again, I saw lots of people going, even the Papua New Guinea Courier. <laughs> <laughs> has contempt for our political scene. So was was that again basically the people that fall for it are the people that that sort of really want it to be true rather than the your opponents? Well, I mean the the, sh the shtick 
with the PNG courier is of sort of, of, of a third party looking in at a decaying economy, crumbling infrastructure and corrupt politicians. And so it, it rolled really easily. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I got fact checked by full chat, full, uh, full fact and Reuters. Um, and, you know, they, they did official things saying this is not real. But the second I put it up on Twitter, my, my whole game was to try and make people think it was real. The second I put it on Twitter without any link to me having written it, you know, people like my mum would write, click, save it and share it on Facebook. And then it just blew up on there. And then it would come back around again, reappear on Twitter. And someone like Stephen Fry would share it um, to 6 million people saying, I don't know who wrote this, but it's brilliant. I'd like to buy them a packet of hobnobs. And I'm sat there thinking, well, that, <laughs> that's what I wanted to happen really. But also I wish you knew it was me because <laughs> I want my, I want my plaudits now. Right. Do you now that you come out, do you, have you got your hobnobs from Stephen Fry as he welched on the deal? I've got my hobnobs. <laughs> okay. Um, come on, Fry. <laughs> Before we start, a bit of news. The next Origin Story live show is fast approaching. Ian may have left Oh God What Now, but the two of us are still interrogating some of the most misunderstood and abused ideas in politics on Origin Story. In the latest series, we've covered subjects like climate change denial, Winston Churchill and atheism. At London's 21 Soho next Tuesday, we'll be talking about the concept of the elite and unpacking the wit and wisdom of Matt Goodwin before taking questions from the audience. Tickets are selling fast, so go to 21-soho.com to get yours. That's 21-soho.com. We would love to see you there. First up, meet the new middle-aged kids on the block. The new Conservatives group of MPs have proposed a plan to cut net migration by 400,000. That includes the closing of schemes to grant worker visas to care workers and the end of graduating students staying in the UK for up to two years to find work. Figurehead Miriam Cates claims that if their advice is not heeded, the Tories risk losing the next election. Imagine that scenario. Marie, Cates won the South Yorkshire seat of Penistone and Stocksbridge from Labour in 2019 as part of the whole Red Wall Fandango. Can you tell us more about her? Uh, Sure. So she's quite an interesting one because I think that after the 2019 election, when again, you know, there was like one million pieces saying here are the Red Wall MPs, you know, the kind of new, as you said, the kind of new kids on the block, etc. She wasn't that prominent. She only really, I think, started making the headlines. Was it a few months ago? I think earlier this year, maybe late last year, when... She started talking a lot about sexual education in schools. And I can remember the exact speech, but it was quite unhinged, effectively saying, you know, five-year-olds are now being taught about anal sex in this constant. And it was like, well, yeah, you, you'd struggle to find anyone disagreeing with you here. No one would want five-year-olds to be taught about anal sex, but I doubt they are. Um, and, and then, yeah, since then, so she appeared um, at that slightly uh, mad, uh, quite right-wing conference a few months ago, gave a speech, which was talked about quite a lot. Um, but no, so she's effectively just on the sort of like proper, proper right of the Conservative Party. She's very religious. She is, I think, if not entirely anti-abortion in terms of wanting to ban it tomorrow, then clearly has mm. spoken about the fact that she does not think it's good. Uh, she, as far as I can tell, does not want trans people to transition. Um, so, yeah, no, just remarkably, I think what's interesting about her is that she is really, really socially conservative, which I think is quite a new phenomenon in the kind of, you know, in the, the year, years of Tory government we've had. We've not really had that many quite mm. young MPs. That We've had lots of them who've been very to the right economically, but I think socially, especially younger MPs, that feels like quite a new phenomenon. Well, um, I read that she set up a social covenant unit with Danny Kruger to uh, strengthen family communities in the nation, which is just one of those sentences that makes you yeah. mm. shudder mm. a little bit. Yeah. Um, Kruger is also very religious, so does, do you think that this means that this new Tory right is primarily a Christian conservative affair, which was, of course, a huge part of the national conservatism vibe? Uh, yes, 
then again, and it feels like that, that that feels like if not like either depending on how you look at it, a very new thing or just something that's not happened in a long time. But this kind of very like political religion, because um, I think actually, so I, I forgot one of the things she did, which I think got her quite a lot of publicity, mm-hmm. was saying that people need to breed a lot more, otherwise Western civilization will collapse. Which again is one of those where you go, hmm, <laughs> mm, I don't, hmm, <laughs> something that, about that makes yeah. me, ugh. What's the history um, of this idea like? Well, yes, <laughs> How did no, that work exactly. out? Um, but, but yes, no, absolutely, because I think, you know, we've always had religious people in politics on the left and on the right, but I think that there's a near sort of like, weaponized, I guess, sense of religion from her and Kruger, etc., which feels um, quite new and not entirely welcome, I would say. Zoe, as Marie mentioned, there was the whole birth rate business. Uh, she also cited cultural Marxism conspiracy theory. And on the day we record, uh, helpfully, she published an opinion piece in The Telegraph which claimed that Labour wants to nationalise our children by hiring more graduates in nurseries, uh, sees this as a plan for socialist state indoctrination, brainwashing, etc. Um, does she represent a crossing of the line between traditional social conservatism and the, the paranoid style that we see in the US, like a kind of quite an intricate, essentially sort of conspiracy theory about socialists trying to um, meddle with our children? I definitely think of um, the members of the Conservative Party on the right, she does represent that kind of school of thought a little bit more strongly than others. Um, it, it's funny, she talks obviously a lot about falling birth rates, but, and, you know, there is obviously a concern we've got. She, she, she identifies some reasonable concerns, which is an ageing population, crumbling public services, a lack of housing, a lack of, you know, why are people not having children? Well, but the the answers aren't just empower women to stay at home and stop making them go to work and look after their kids and let's make the family unit stronger. Actually, the answers are things like affordable housing and uh, more investment in infrastructure and probably things like immigration, which help to, you know, fulfill vacancies in this country. But it's like the solutions they come to are not actually, they don't actually answer the And the childcare that she seems to be very angry about seems like that would also help absolutely and i think you know this the the nationalize our children thing obviously got a lot of um stick on twitter it kind of reminds me of when i think it was fiona bruce on question time asked angela rayner if they were planning to the labor party were planning to nationalize sausages it's a bit kind of like throw something extreme at labor and say are you planning to nationalize this her concerns seem to be that yeah that nurseries and the state will indoctrinate children in this way and uh, parents should be in charge of raising their children so they want to see families empowered to look after their well, children. Well Starmer doesn't seem to want to nationalize anything so it would be funny if the one thing that he nationalized was children <laughs> and sausages. <laughs> and sausages yeah. and just like not not you know not railways not water it's no, just, just children and sausages. Children and sausages yeah um yeah, no, I think um, she definitely represents this slightly more Americanized version of conservatism where it's like identifying real problems that people are struggling with but coming up with very old-fashioned solutions. And I think that's what's interesting about this kind of new conservative wave. It's actually more very old conservatism, mm. really. Mm. Oh, no, I agree. I just wanted to add as well, it, it feels very hysterical. I think that's the kind of thing they seem to have inherited from the US of this kind of tone. And, you know, and obviously this is massively oversimplifying, but quite often, you know, in Britain you do have people on this, especially on the left kind of 
shouting about the world being a terrible place, etc., and wanting to change it, and the right kind of going, you know, calm down, dear. Whereas I think that this kind of strand of right-wing politics, which is properly like, well, the West has fallen, everything is terrible, feels quite new, but also I'm not, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit later, but I'm not convinced we'll work here is the problem. Um, yeah, I sort of see it as um, apocalyptic conservatism, which mm. is mainly like kind of the writings of, of Alastair Heath. Mm. And every headline is just like, you know, the wall, the walls are crumbling, the barbarians are at the gates. And like you said, I, 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 do, I do remember not so long ago, the whole Tory vibe was just like, calm down, yeah, everybody. things are basically fine. <laughs> but, <laughs> like, what, you yeah. don't want to change anything. Yeah. Um, Henry, you've been tracking the Tories closely, uh, obviously, for, for material. How new does this tendency feel to you? Is this something that you would be, you know, poking fun at? two years ago or is this uh, is this an exciting new opportunity i don't know whenever you think you've seen the maddest one they, they chuck out another one into, <laughs> into the world and you're like where, where have you come from but, but it was clearly a, a, a conveyor belt of doolally evangelical christians somewhere um steve baker's garage perhaps for uh, just churning these people out um and they they sort of i don't know do they think they've clearly read the bible and they've either not understood any of it or they do, and they just completely misinterpreted the whole thing. Do they think Mary and Joseph escaped the purge of the infant in innocence to get 40 quid in a like a mobile in Egypt? They, they completely warp the, the, mes the message of Christian fellowship, and then they use it as a sort of force field to, to make their, their horrible arguments. Because we often have the, uh, the, the, the question on this podcast, which is like grifter or crank. Um, what's yeah. the question? And sometimes I feel almost a little safer with the people cynically exploiting culture war issues than I someone mean, but, like Kate's who seems to like, do you, do you, when you see her speak, do you think, oh, no, she's she's like all in? Well, you, they say the first casualty of the culture war is the will to live, isn't it? <laughs> These people are sort of, I mean, it's it's equally terrifying. If, if they're that stupid and they're in frontline politics, then that's obviously terrifying. And if they understand what they're saying and they're using it to manipulate uh, their malicious ends, then that's equally terrifying. It's not, And usually the conclusion I come to is it's a bit of both, skewed one way or the other. Um, but there's no like optimistic outcome there, is there? No, I suppose it worries me when there's, when there's a sort of faith version faith-based version of that because mm. i've been researching quite a lot about like apocalyptic uh thinking and um you know it very much is that kind of it's good versus evil yeah and mm. and you almost sort of you, know, you almost turn to someone like uh george osborne say where you know there's no real morality involved there he just likes money um which is not a great personality trait but you sort of know where you are and you see in American politics, like what happens when people believe they are on a crusade against the evil cultural Marxist pedophiles and so on. We've moved into, there's a sort of comfortable liberal idea about secularization and it's all going one way and sort of Christianity is on its way out. But across the world and here, evangelical Christianity and other religions, but evangelical Christianity is surging. Um, and the, I guess faced with genuine existential threats to the planet and the economy and um, the, it sort of makes sense that these people feed into what's going on. But instead of using their energy to, to combat the actual problems in front of them, they invent other ones, uh, which they then further invent um, mm. stories to, 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 to further their own agendas. 
Um, but also, I, I wonder, my thing is, I wonder, electorally speaking, how that's going to pan out. Because I think one of the reasons why the Conservatives have been very good at winning elections in Britain is that, and which I know is kind of a cliche, but I do think it's true of the, you know, right-wing people think the left are misguided and the left think right-wing people are evil. And that's, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to convince people to vote for you if you're like, oh, they're just a bit wrong. Like, fundamentally, they're not terrible people. They're just a bit wrong. And we can sort of bring them around to our way of thinking. Works a lot better than thinking, well, clearly, the, you know, people like Miriam Cates, I think, genuinely believes that, you know, the left is evil and woke people are evil and destroying Britain. And that how, again, you know, if you were to put kind of like Tory strategist hat on, how do you convince people you clearly loathe? Um, it is kind of, yes, yeah, so I think electorally, that'll be quite an interesting one to watch. Do um, you worry that people like Heron Kruger could succeed in making abortion more of a, a live issue in British politics, which is generally outside of, uh, obviously, Northern Ireland? You know, it, it hasn't been for a long time. I don't think so, because we've actually... Over the last sort of, you know, decade or so of conservative government, we have had a number of like never, you know, super, super senior people. Oh, shoot. Jacob Rees-Mogg was one of them, I suppose. But um, but we've had, you know, every couple of years, someone rising through the ranks who's a bit dodgy on abortion. And so far, I would say nothing's really happened. It should be fine. Because I think even on Tory benches, if you talk to Tory MPs, even them, I think the vast majority, for the vast majority of them, it is not a subject that's in contention at all. So I'm not. I mean, yeah, I, I am choosing for once to be optimistic and think actually that this, this one's definitely settled. Everything's fine, says Marie LeConte. Zoe, is she onto something electorally with this super hard line on immigration for people that think that, that Braverman is a is a big softy? Like, she seems to think that the, 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 you look at the state of the Tory party and the opinion polls, their idea seems to be that if you just hate immigrants harder, then um, victory is within reach. Is there any evidence out there in in the country that this is what people are craving? We hear the uh, red a lot of red wall MPs and quite a few of the MPs that make up um, this you know, new conservative branch. We hear them say quite a lot that when they go to voters' doorsteps, the the live issue is small boats. I just don't believe that, and that just doesn't really match up with what opinion polls say, which is that most people's priority is the cost of living. And I think what they're hoping is that they can maybe present the cost of living or the resulting effects of the cost of living in a way so that they can sort of scapegoat it and make it somehow a consequence of uncontrolled immigration. Actually, when you read the New Conservatives' plan for cutting immigration numbers, it's not costed. There's holes in it, you know, talking about um, ending visas for health and social care workers and just pulling in people from um, the UK. Well, people aren't filling those vacancies because the wages are way too low. And then they go on, well, we need higher wages and we need lower taxes. It's like, of course, our Conservative Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has thought of all this and there are reasons why he can't implement it. So... I think it's easy to link immigration to other issues and to have it resonate with people who are feeling the pinch of the cost of living. But ultimately, they're going to go and vote for people who they think are going to make them feel better off. And I just don't think that when people go to the ballot box, the majority of people will be thinking about Dover or the small boats or those issues that they're trying to kind of put forefront. Well, obviously, we're all swept away by Kate's mania at the moment. But looking forward, she's got a majority of 7,000 in what was until 2019 a Labour seat. Um, there's a, Things have really sort of turned back around, in at least in the polls in that part of the country. I mean, do you think she'll survive the next election? Because a lot of the newcomers will not. 
Yeah, I think she'll be feeling nervous. Um, yeah, a majority seven thousand. I mean, I I'm from uh, West Yorkshire, but my dad lives in Sheffield, and I'm quite familiar with Peniston and Stocksbridge, which is her okay. um, constituency. It's quite a rural part of Sheffield. I think it really depends on what the feeling towards the Conservatives are in that area. I mean, I think it's um, it's a mix. Sheffield and, and the, the surrounding areas are quite a mix of um, middle class and working class people and different sort of salary levels. So it'll be interesting to see how they react to Kate's. And especially when she was elected, I think she was very much elected because she did a good local campaign. But now she's becoming more high profile and much more vocal on these issues that aren't local issues. Mm. Um, it'd be interesting to see whether that still rings with her election whether they still like the ideas that she's spouting, which are quite um, extreme for a lot of people. So I think she she should be nervous. But then a lot of people in the party still kind of think of her as the darling and the rising star. And would they think that if they thought she just would be gone next year? I don't know. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think it'll be a good litmus test for how the Red Wall is actually reacting to these uh, Red Wall MPs who are spouting kind of more and more extreme views. And finally, if she does hold on, do you see her as a likely... Um, you know, front bench start, and uh, let's assume it's a brother and bad not kind of vibe rather than a um, a mordant kind of situation. You can imagine her going down well with the Tory, some of the Tory membership. Um, the Tory membership tend to tend to like women, sort of, you know, uh, women who kind of often present in ways that seem quite kind of harmless, but then have these fairly extreme views. Mm. I mean, we saw this a little bit with Liz Truss. I mean, I, I think I could see her on the front bench. I think it depends the way that the um, the sort of future Conservative Party leadership goes. Ultimately, when we look back, most of the time, the Conservative leadership has leaned towards the centre. I mean, the Conservatives still tend to think when they go towards the centre, that's when they tend to win. And when you speak to One Nation Tories and moderate Conservatives in the party at the minute, they are sort of silently confident that the party will return to the centre ultimately, which is, oh. yeah, which is quite interesting. Um, but then, of course, they will say that because they're the moderate Conservatives and they kind of always will believe in in what they're offering. But I think when you look historically, you know, look at people like David Cameron, even Boris Johnson, he was pretty moderate um, in terms of his policies. So, um, yeah, it will be interesting to see um, where the party does lean, especially if it gets thrashed at the next election. I I just assume it's going to be like the the show Years and Years. So I like this slightly more uh, reasonable Mm. prediction you're making. Next up, a question from a listener in But Your Emails. This week, Jenny Cooper uh, asks, why are they, meaning Labour, messing about, having rows about the fact that they may be expelling people I've never heard of, Neil Lawson? Sick burn. (laughs) I am old enough to have lived through militants, etc., and find it depressing to hear this stuff happening so close to an election. So, Marie, is Neil Lawson actually being expelled, or is he just being investigated, threatened? Like, explain who... Who he? Oh, okay. Yes, uh, Neil Lawson runs uh, the Think Tank Compass, um, and Compass's big thing is the kind of progressive alliance. I suppose so. You know, whatever seat, saying you know who is going to win, like who, who is in the best position to win. So the Labour, the Lib Dems, the Greens, such as they're not exactly tied to a party, and they and I think you know they don't shy away from recommending again parties that are not Labour in certain seats. And yeah, and apparently he'd been a Labour member for a very long time and Labour is now investigating him for tweeting, I think, encouraging people to vote for the Greens in an election where uh, Labour was standing, which, so I sort of agree with uh, with the listener here in that 
it, it, it just doesn't feel very dignified. It feels like, you know, if this is a party that's getting very serious about getting into government very soon, then actually really going through the tweets of whoever and going, oh, actually, you know, you said that a while back, like, you know, do you really belong here as a member? Feels just petty and small. But then, I don't know, so m- my wonkier thing is that I wonder, so I feel like rules around party membership were very much made in pre-social media times. Um, and I think, and, and we kind of saw that in the Corbyn years as well, I think. Mm. And we're still, you know, and there's still, I mean, you say we, I'm not a Labour member, but we, we in general, we, the, the demos, uh, kind of need to have a conversation about what it means. So, for example, if someone tweets or likes a tweet, I think someone loves their Labour membership for liking a tweet from, was it Caroline Lucas or Nicola Sturgeon? And the tweet itself was not political. And again, and that feels really That's weird. Of like, is, is there no exactly? So I think it is also a slightly boring problem of we still have no idea what, how to deal with social media. Even if someone says something once on Twitter, is that an equivalent to someone saying something to their mates in the pub because they've got 72 followers? Which, which should not get you banned from a party or is it the equivalent to campaigning for another party in which case you should get banned and again and I think we don't quite have those answers yet well, most Labour members I know have voted for other parties generally sort of mm. Greens and- in pro- at particular moments like European elections in 2019 or whatever mm. but presumably if they'd put that up on social media then that could be but that's the expulsion. thing, right? Was it even like Tony Blair, I believe, um, told people not to necessarily vote Labour in 2019? And as far as I can tell, he's still a Labour member. Because again, that's <laughs> going to be the problem, I think. These are rules that you will never be able to apply in the same way for everyone. Um, so no, so, so I think, yeah, Labour is being a bit silly here. Um, and but, but also there are kind of wider questions over what to do. Uh, Henry, what do you make of this slightly purgy <laughs> tendency? Um, I... Keir Starmer used to come in my gym and I've been defending him for longer than uh, I'd, I'd have liked because he was such a nice man face to face. But actually, good technique. More, <laughs> say again. Good technique on the weights. <laughs> does he does he towel off he, at the end? He used to put it out on the treadmill. Didn't do much interesting in there. <laughs> but yeah, so I've been defending him to people who I know who intensely dislike him for a long time. Uh, but actually, I'm not I'm not seeing anything coming from him that, that and, and making me again think optimistically about the future and this like so it just seems vindictive and unnecessary and you know when when you're not making any sort of you for, for whatever reason they're playing this ultra defensive game um just letting the Tories make their own mistakes if you're not making any compelling moral com- cases for anything and um, but when just spending your time just sort of doing like tetchy infighting it's it doesn't look good does it so there's a there's a kind of you know a cliche about you know divided parties don't win or whatever. Now in the case of Starmer, you can see why he wanted to distance himself from Corbyn and, and Corbynites, and particularly anybody who kind of um, even touched the line on on anti-Semitism. I wonder, having done that, that nobody except sort of Rishi Sunak still thinks that he's sort of in bed with Corbyn. What is the point of going after somebody like? Neil Lawson, who is not, it's not Derek Hatton in the 80s, is it? Mm. I mean, like I said, you know, I'm sure Jenny Cooper is not the only person that had not heard of him before. Mm. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people are kind of wondering why Neil Lawson, you know, he's not, it's not like he's incredibly vocal in his sort of disdain for Starmer or anything like that. He actually, you know, he's pretty moderate. I think this, you know, there has been a sense amongst the left in the Labour Party for quite a long time now that's that um, the leadership are coming down quite hard on those who they think might challenge Starmer too much, you know, if he comes into government. 
there has been a sense throughout his, the history of the Labour Party that the party has sort of verged on, you know, doing these purges as they come up to sort of regaining power. And it's this sense of regaining control. I think Starmer felt it was really important to have a sense of discipline over the party and to rid... Um, any concern in voters' minds, those voters who, you know, say they voted Conservative for the first time in their life because they didn't want to vote for Corbyn. Mm. So I think he's really just outwardly trying to soothe those concerns. But, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this actually works. If we do get a Labour majority, you know, how much of a challenge are the left going to present for, the left of the party going to present for Starmer? Because, you know, they, they've been pretty quiet so far because they want to see Labour win the next election but then if Starmer has a majority he's going to be dependent on keeping those people on side and you know they're going to be annoyed about this so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it pans out um, but yeah I think um, the leadership feel that they're doing it to regain some trust in the Labour Party. But it does seem like weird that if, if you had voted Tory before um, if in fact if you had stood as a Tory MP then you would be welcome um, but if you know in twenty you know, mm. 18 or whatever, you said, oh, I quite like Caroline Lucas, then that seems to be that seems to be a problem. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the optics obviously aren't good because, as you say, you know, he's got MP, we've got an MP in his party who crossed the floor of the House who used to be a Conservative. Um, and now you're saying someone who advocated, you know, voting Green or voting for the Lib Dems or whatever is, is not welcome. So I think it's, um yeah, it's a confusing message. But, you know, the uh, Labour leadership remain pretty tight-lipped about um, the decisions, why they come to the decisions they do. So we'll all have to kind of guess. <laughs> Next up, Mark Zuckerberg's Meta is about to launch Threads, Instagram's rival to Twitter. If just uh, one-sixth of Instagram users sign up, then it will become bigger than Twitter overnight. Uh, Now, if you're of a certain age, the name Threads reminds you of a harrowing drama set during a fictional nuclear attack on Sheffield in 1984. Um, And speaking of harrowing wastelands, Twitter was virtually unusable over the weekend thanks to Elon Musk's plan to limit the number of tweets you can see per day. The latest in a long line of baffling decisions was someone that I, I just saw a writer today describe him as a former genius, <laughs> uh, which is very good. <laughs> Sorry, my feeling is that people are desperate to replace Twitter, but Mastodon and Blue Sky aren't doing the do. Do you think this could be the life raft that people have been waiting for? OK, so I used Mastodon when everybody was talking about coming off Twitter and I found it incredibly user unfriendly It was really frustrating. You were supposed to be able to import all your contacts from Twitter and it didn't work. Only about 50 of mine were imported um, and they were really random. So it kind of looked like I was following, you know, people I'd never really interacted with on Twitter before. And it just it didn't really work properly. So I think that was the problem with Mastodon. I just think it didn't compare to Twitter. And obviously there was a lot of hype of Musk is going to come in, ruin Twitter. We're all going to have to get kicked off it. We have to, you know, flee the ship before it sinks. And actually it stayed fairly afloat you know a few you know holes plugged in kind of thing um i haven't used blue sky so i don't know what the um criticisms of of that are i think people are increasingly feeling irritated with twitter i mean the 600 tweet limit a day thing is incredibly frustrating especially if you're a journalist and you pretty much get all your news and other news on there um sorry news from other people as well but you know we we'd yet to see how threads would actually work in practice i think you know instagram is obviously a very popular app so um you could see a lot of people getting on very very quickly which might help with the kind of issues mm. that mastodon had but i mean i don't use instagram and i don't want to go back to using instagram and i think if this happens i'll have to and i don't really want to do that so i i'm just hoping someone takes twitter off elon musk 
Well, we will get to that. This may happen. Um, Could Labour nationalise Twitter? Could Labour nationalise children's, children's sausages, sausages and Twitter? And Twitter. Yeah. That's, that would be perfect. Yeah, yeah. that would be good. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll have a list. We'll send to Kia. You <laughs> pass it on to him at the gym. And just say, Please nationalise the following things. Um, Marie, you are a, a top quality tweeter. I'm just going to come out and say it. Thank you. Um, who built a following there. Would you be... You know, would you be okay with leaving or is the thought of having to build a new network? I mean, I suppose if you've got your Instagram, that's already a network, but it's, it's, it's not the same as Twitter in scale. Does that just seem kind of exhausting and not fun or would you welcome the opportunity? This is actually very funny because this very morning I wrote a column for Zoe Grunewald's own New Statesman making that exact point. This is saying, very incestuous. I am, I am, yeah, I am more than tired. Don't make me move again. Uh, but no, so I, I am, uh, I am on Blue Sky and have been for a few months, and it, and it's kind of weird. So I, I am sort of getting followers there, but but yeah, it, it just feels very tiring to be like, oh, I'm just going to find people. Although the one thing I will say is being quite good for is very sort of slyly not following back people. I actually regretted following back on Twitter where I'm like oh oh no I've, I, I must have missed that I think my problem is more career stuff where I think as a freelance journalist having quite a big following on Twitter has been immensely helpful uh, and I'm quite worried and I you know and the problem is I genuinely have no answer to that question of will my career change in some way if Twitter disappears mm. I don't know uh, I am quite stressed about it because I really enjoy paying my rent every month but no but aside from that you know I, I think it would be fine although yeah I, I definitely don't want Instagram to become my main platform um, Henry, what about you? I mean, because obviously, you, the, you know, Secretary and Mark Francois and all that, I mean, they, those are sort of Twitter creations. This is really sort of using using the art form, I suppose. Would that work just as well somewhere else? Or is there a feeling that, that Twitter is the one where everyone's paying attention? It's, it's a good question, isn't it? I used, to, um, I used to just be a normal Joe on there with my account with 182 followers tweeting uh, in quite a sort of futile and depressing way, getting a like a couple of times a week. You'd have a blue tick now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And now, and then I I started pretending to be a twat and I suddenly got tens of thousands of followers. So it sort of (laughs) blew up and it it seemed like a sort of magic formula. So I don't know. I think if, yeah, like, like the other guys are saying, if we moved over to a new platform, you've got to do it all again from scratch. And that just looks absolutely exhausting. I just like the fact that it felt that everybody was there. And there were mm. there were people that you know there were people maybe followed you you know there some people I like a musician or a novelist or whatever and the idea that they that, and they've probably just forgotten to not follow me and the idea of of coming over and just going remember you followed <laughs> me after I did an interview with you in 2011 so you're definitely going to want to follow me on Threads I think isn't that what happened at the start on Mastodon everyone went over there everyone put one foot in the Mastodon lifeboat and then tried mm. for like a day and a half to get all the same followers they've got on the other place. No one did it. And then so everyone leapt straight back onto Twitter saying, actually, it's all right here, isn't it? Mm. I think people maybe want to be, they still like being at an enormous house party in which there is a certain percentage of maniacs rather than a very small gathering around someone's house where everybody's quite nice. So I will say, actually, Blue Sky is kind of weird at the moment because it's still, at least, I don't know, the, the kind of bubble mm-hmm. I'm in it is very much that. It's just, you know, people I know, acquaintances, and, it, and it's all very pleasant. So it feels, 
I know, like, it, it, it makes me think if, you know, when like, a movie opens and, like, some villagers are kind of going about their business, going to the market, kind of waiting for the plot to come to them. Um, and, and that's what Blue Sky feels like at the moment. And actually, and it's terrible after years spent complaining about the worst people in the world uh, being on Twitter. I'm now like, maybe we do need some antagonists, though, because actually I'm not really sure what we're discussing on Blue Sky without the twats. Yeah, well, that's when you go on onto Blue Sky and everything's nice and rosy. When you log onto Twitter in the morning, it's just explosions and warfare, <laughs> and everyone arguing from six a.m. nonstop. Yeah, and the, the problem is, de- and, and and that's sort of entertaining. The eccentric woman. Um, You've got to narrow that one down, man. <laughs> who, claims, who claims that the the woman who went missing, who fell in the uh, yes water, didn't actually exist, mm. and so this was going around today, just like full on conspiracy theory lunacy and everybody was kind of fascinated kind of, look at what this person believes and i don't know whether sort of hashtag games mm. you know if no. the old twitter can compete now that we've got addicted to like but you need the mental stuff people. so I'm, I'm a very long time uh, tumblr user and tumblr is so good for that so i think one of one of the best weeks on tumblr of our lives was uh when we found out that this <laughs> sorry uh <laughs> This woman was stealing bones from a cemetery because whenever the cemetery flooded, when it rained a lot, like some of the bones would float away. And so she'd collect the bones and send them to witches by post. <laughs> and that was great. And generally, a tremendous time was had by all for a week going, look at this nutter. And the problem is, yeah, I think Blue Sky and other places so far do not really have a look at this nutter kind of what you, you What you want is someone just like going, I don't think any novel should include the letter E. You know, like there's mad book Twitter opinions yeah. and where everybody gets like super agitated and like, you won't believe this. Yeah. Now, look, we and the, to being big, big picture here. Um, Meta is notorious for harvesting data. There'd be many problems with uh, with Facebook and so on. Uh, how much does the average user, do you think, care about that stuff? I oh I think it's maybe a bit more complicated than that. So I think the data so it, it basically depends. So power users, that would it deter power users from making the move? Because if it would, then I think that would have consequences. And if it wouldn't, then I think quote unquote kind of normal users would just follow them on, and that would be it. I think it matters not because it wouldn't necessarily matter to the kind of you know box standard user, but it matters in the sort of grander scheme of things. Right. Okay. So not a, so like you know. So the thing is, if you don't have the Stephen journalists King. and celebrities and stuff right. moving on, then you're probably not going to get the others moving with them. Would be my theory. Zoe Musk has made nothing but bad decisions. Um, like the the far right troll in flux, the blue tick Farago, uh, the exodus of celebrities and advertisers. How long do you think it can actually last under his command? Like you said, initially when the people were fleeing to Mastodon, it was like this is literally going to die by the end of the week, mm. which was a little hysterical but I mean it doesn't seem super tenable no but then you know this is a man who he's in charge of Tesla and he's like apparently a really successful businessman so it's like there must be some strategy to what he's doing but to to everyone it just looks like why is he killing this app that so many people use I mean is his sole purpose to drive people off it it, and then what does he do with it so there's a little bit of me that's like what is he actually planning and what does it all mean why is he trying to make people get off the app but you know that doesn't really make a lot of sense so either there's some overall business strategy that we don't understand but is going to you know involve him harvesting lots of data and selling it on or something like that or 
everything he's trying and thought would be a hit, like getting people to pay for the blue tick verification, just isn't going the way he thought it would because he misunderstood the sort of people on Twitter and what they wanted to use Twitter for. In which case, you think we'd see a rollback of some of these policies. And, you know, for ages he was talking about getting rid of the blue ticks and then they didn't go and they didn't go and then suddenly Mm. they just went. Um, So I think it does feel a little bit like maybe there's just a level of incompetence there at Twitter. You know, we saw him firing a whole load of members of staff um, and then, of course, there were loads of problems. So it, it does feel a little bit like he's just kind of operating in the dark and we're all just falling victim to it. Oh, no, I'm just coming in to say that they have only just announced that um, they're backtracking on the whole non-users comes. He tweets at all things. So I think your theory of they have no idea what they're doing does seem I know. to be correct. It does. You do feel like, oh, he must know what he's doing because he's so successful. But really, I just don't, I d- just don't think he does. I don't want to um, spoil uh, <laughs> the last episode of Origin Story we're doing, but we're doing it on Elon Musk. Mm. And we're exploring the perhaps his brain has just broken theory mm. of the past year because... The decisions seem to make no sense to me whatsoever. No. Content moderation is the big challenge, I think, for any social media platform. And Musk came in going uh, free speech for all, which is not – it's a bit more complicated than, than he thinks that it is. <laughs> um, he just seems to think everybody can say everything they like and it'll be fine. And obviously it costs a lot of money and it involves a lot of people doing actually some quite grim work, you know, removing posts and do you do you are there any platforms on which platforms other platforms you use? Is there any way you think that it's has got it right that people are not being um, that there's, there's there's a feeling that you, of freedom, but not of Nazi freedom? <laughs> he's, he's always the talking worst about kind. The, <laughs> the worst kind. He's always talking about the digital town square, isn't he? And trying to trying to create that whatever that means. I don't know. I don't. I think there's always going to be a tension between what is people talking in a right and proper way and commercial interests looking for as much interaction and clicks as possible, which are always going to be fueled by horrible people saying horrible things to each other and causing trouble and um, like, you know, causing big flare ups. So while that tension exists and I don't see how you'd get rid of it, while that's the way you make money on these things, but people seem to be drawn like flies to the, to the carnage and the chaos. Um, while that happens, I don't see how you, you'll get the content moderation right because the temptation with the side mm. of the thing will always be to sort of let more go because you'll get more interaction. Well, that's kind of the thing, isn't it? It's the conclusion of all these books about social media is that we've had, you know, quite a few years now to see the experiment play out. And it turns out that it's not a wonderful, enlightening uh, exchange of ideas um, leading to elegant solutions to the <laughs> world's problems. But it does seem as if like, oh, people shouting at each other uh, makes money. That seems to be that's that's not what it says in the First Amendment. This is the the social media <laughs> version of free speech. I mean, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it maybe you know how face to face, no one ever says the things they say to each other on Twitter. But maybe deep down, human beings have always just wanted to be assholes to each other like this. And social media has been the outlet that's allowed us all to to become the people we've always been destined to be. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you might be right. Um, so, do you think we will ever see? Whatever happens here, a platform as influential and central as pre-Musk Twitter, and I don't know at which point you, uh, you know, and if you guys sort of came onto Twitter, and I don't know what your kind of like golden age was, but that was a place where the sort of movers and shakers came together, and you could be like, oh my god, I got, uh, you know, I got a reply from Joyce Carol Oates or Susanna Hoss from the Bangles or whoever, um, and you could you could put out a tweet, and somebody would commission like a feature. 
Like, this sounds interesting. And like there was this brilliant sense of like you could promote your work and it could actually go viral if it was a you know, good article. And all these kind of wonderful things about it. Can threads be that? Can a, a post-Musk Twitter be that? Or is that actually a period in the history of social media which is just gone? And what's actually going to happen is fragmentation. Yeah, I think Twitter was interesting because it, as you say, it was a real sort of point in history. I remember, I I think I came onto Twitter in 2012, where I was quite young. So my tweets were incredibly inane. But Michael McIntyre followed me. And that was like my claim to fame. I was like, absolutely obsessed with the fact that Michael McIntyre was just there within my reach. Obviously, he didn't follow me for long. And I'm not sure why he did. But it really did seem like, you know, those people that you watched on TV or you read, they were now within sort of touching distance. Mm. And you could tweet them, you could let them know what you thought of them. And that was a kind of level of access that I don't think we've really had before. Since then, and because of that, it's kind of you know, as Henry was saying, evolved into this sort of shouty place where people now just can like throw and hurl abuse at each other and be a bit too over familiar. And I, I think, you know, it definitely sort of evolved from that kind of utopian, look how close we all are digitally and online to this sort of slightly more kind of messy place. I don't think threads will be able to recreate that sort of utopian feel in the beginning. I think we're way too past that. The horse has bolted, but it will be interesting to see what comes out of it. And then just to say quickly, so I am actually like, on, on, on very much that note. I was thrilled so on Blue Sky. Really randomly, like, one of the guys from like Call the Midwife or something followed me and I was like, uh... Well, hello. Well, maybe I'm <laughs> wrong then. Yeah, maybe no, no, so I, we yeah. can get all that back. Yeah, I have hope. Some random famous actor, and as I will, welcome, welcome. Yeah. Is, is he the most famous person on Blue Sky? Because there's like less competition. I'm going to be honest with you. Probably yes. <laughs> the thrill of having some random famous person follow you on social media—it never is just gets unmatched. old. It never gets old. Yeah, especially a really random one yeah. where you're like. Not sure how you ended up here, but welcome to my home. <laughs> I used to get really stressed though because I thought, well, at some point they're going to unfollow me because they're not going to mm. like everything mm. that I'm doing here. Uh, it's not all whatever made them follow me in the first place. And so the optimum solution for me was that somebody would, um, that a celebrity would just give up on Twitter but not delete their account. <laughs> so they'd never unfollow me because <laughs> they never use Twitter. So I wouldn't have to worry about like, what if they don't like this joke? So I think the good thing about this is that Twitter has made us really sane, I think, as we've just shown in oh, this yeah. discussion. Like, made... We're all doing great. We're all thriving. Yeah, yeah. normal people, uh, just, as, just as God intended. Nothing <laughs> wrong with us. Yeah. So we've reached the end of the show. Just time to talk about the stories that have gone under the radar this week. Henry, you're our guest. What has caught your eye? I mean, it hasn't quite gone under the radar, but considering the scale of it, it's massively gone under the radar. Yesterday was the hottest day on Earth um, since pre-industrial times, and we're looking set to hit one and a half degrees warming post-industrial. Um, and El Nino's just started, and there's usually a lag with that, so it's only going to get hotter this year. And, I mean, th- this is... Uh, we used the word apocalyptic earlier in the show, but it's genuinely serious stuff. And it's the sort of thing that goes up to make maybe number seven most read on the BBC website, and then it fades away mm. again. It's and kind of weird that, like this that Zach on. Goldsmith resigning because Sunak doesn't take the environment seriously enough is a bigger news story than the, the actual environment. Yeah, it's insane. Um, and we're all just like passengers on the bus getting driven towards it by Elon Musk. 
looking at looking at this coming. And we we constantly receive this data saying you've got to do something about your planet from people who know what they're talking about. And we say, yeah, we do. And then we carry on doing all the other stuff we're doing, moaning about just stop oil protesters stopping ten minutes of Wimbledon. Mm. I'm just I'm in favour of everything they do in principle now. Mm. I'm so annoyed by people who are annoyed by just stop oil. If they turned up at my door and threw orange powder in my face. It would be funny. And just made a mess. I go, <laughs> I go good for you. You've got a point. Um, can I go and wash it off now? I, I, I was just like, yes, uh, big picture. There, there seems to be a bit of an image problem with them because of the way they're portrayed in the media, but it doesn't mean they're wrong. No, they're right. They're annoying, but they're right. And there's a long tradition of right, annoying right people. That's what I aspire to be. <laughs> annoying, but right. Um, Marie? Uh, yes, there was a really fun story in Politico uh, this week on... So, there's a, you know, one of those, once you read about it, you're like, you know, of course that is a problem, but you'd never think about it normally. So we basically have too many living prime ministers. So we have more now than any time before. So we've got seven. Um, if you had actually... to lose one... <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to the grave. Uh, oh, I just God, mean, OK. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just to sort of, you know... I, oh, I don't really know which one. Probably th- Cameron. Just kind of done with it now. But, no, but the, the problem is, because all former prime ministers receive um, really high-level security, and especially when they travel abroad, you know, and that costs a lot of money, so it's kind of taxpayer-funded, which is fine, and, you know, I'm not arguing against that. But, yeah, but the story is really interesting, because basically we are now, like, the taxpayers are now spending so much money on security for all these living prime ministers, because the problem is, as well, quite a lot of them are still quite young, so they are, again, you know, travelling around the world, doing speeches, they're very, they've not just retired to their country home, so basically, yeah, yeah, we've got this massive ballooning thing, and also, they apparently don't even have quite enough, because you've got to be quite a high-level officer to work on that, and sometimes, apparently, they've got rotor problems, (laughs) because, yeah, because we just have too many living former prime ministers, which I thought was kind of delightful. There was a great uh, joke on uh, on Twitter, actually, I think, a while back about how Liz Truss was like someone who had appeared in one episode of Doctor Who <laughs> and was still appearing at fan conventions 50 <laughs> years later. People go, I don't really remember you. <laughs> so that, yeah, so what she has to be protected for the rest of her life. For the rest of her life. And she's still really young. Rishi Sunak will probably stop being Prime Minister quite soon. He's very young. He will, you know, and he will probably just want to live his life. So, yeah. Could he just... not afford his... Can they not just... You know, means test it and go, you could pay for your own. So there's a bit of debate in the piece as well on specifically when PMs go, like former PMs go abroad uh, to do speeches for, you know, absurd amounts of money of saying, actually, could you not go half these on security? Because <laughs> like, Trust got yeah. paid 80 grand for a speech, which is, you know, maybe two years wages for a lot of people, if, if not more. Mm. 80 grand for speech for being incredibly bad at your job, like world famously bad at your job. I mean, girl boss, I aspire to be her one day. Anyway. (laughs) um, That just made me feel very sad for a moment. Um, Zoe. Okay, so I'm going to do a little bit of, um, not promotion for the new statesman, but it's a fun little gossipy story that I think, you know, your listeners might like. So um, it's just gone out today, but basically there's been a little bit of reported frustration in Labour circles basically about the amount of sort of media opportunities that Wes Streeting has had to promote his new book. Over the last two weeks, I think he had uh, 17 or 18 slots in the Labour media grid to promote and talk about his new memoir, uh, One Boy, Two Bills and a Fry Up, where obviously we've got the launch of a new Labour mission this week, their opportunities mission, and also Labour are setting out their store for the next election. So we've done a little bit of reporting on some of the frustrations that we're hearing from um, sources within the Labour Party. But I think it's interesting because... 
not only is it a nice little bit of kind of internal gossip, um, but I think it also shows you that people are already thinking about who the next Labour leader could be. And one of the people we hear a lot of talk about is Wes Streeting, because I think people see him as a kind of Blairite heir and he represents that part of the, the party. But then, of course, people are also saying, well, we really, you know, the next Labour leader really ought to be a woman. And we see some of those frustrations coming out there as well. So it's just, um, you know, even though we're still a year out from the next general election, people are already maybe starting to think a little bit about oh. their future leadership ambitions. Uh, have you read the book? I will read the book. One Boy, Two Bills and a Fry Up. you read the shit out of it. <laughs> I will read that book. Good. <laughs> and that's the show. Thank you to Marie. Thank you. Zoe. Thank you. And Henry. Thank you. The Diary of a Secret Tory MP is out now at all good bookshops. Not a real Tory MP. (laughs) And he has another book coming soon, available to pre-order now, The Diary of a Secret Royal. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. If you search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to get yours. We'll see you next time. Hello and many thanks from me to David Arnold, Caroline Peterson and Molly Waiting. Thanks for backing the podcast and all the best from me to John Wood, T.E. and Mark Harrison. And thanks for your support to Andrew Wilmot, L.M. and Mary Ann Jennings. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Dorian Linsky with Zoe Grunewald and Marie Leconte. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Adam Wright. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, if you haven't already seen Disney's $50 million sci-fi adventure crater, then you're out of luck because it's been yanked from the service after just seven weeks. This follows the disappearance of dozens of shows from various streaming platforms and infamously the binning of DC's Batgirl movie, despite costing $90 million because uh, it made more sense as a tax write-off. Streamers also pulled the plug on big new shows by people as prominent as J.J. Abrams and Michael Schur. There's some amazing uh, articles about what's happening to the, the streaming boom, including quotes like, this is the single worst time to be making anything in the history of the medium. And from Steven Soderbergh, it's absolutely conceivable the streaming subscription model is the crypto of the entertainment business. Marie, the problem appears to be that the streamers upended the industry's profit-making model with venture capital cash, which uh, builds user bases without worrying about profits. Now suddenly they're like, oh, we, we need to make money and becoming uh, a lot more conservative. Now, to start with the contrarian point, is there just too much TV out there? Might there be an upside to the fact that I think there were 599 new shows, new shows that came out in 2022? Mm. Oh, I mean, and this is pathetic. I genuinely get anxiety about the number of shows there that I should watch. Like, you know, when you like every conversation any of us has had, I think, for the past few years has involved, have you watched this and this and this and that, which is, again, very anxiety inducing. So no, I don't disagree. I think my my problem is that, you know, y- yes, we should probably make fewer shows or fewer sort of like straight to uh, platform movies. But do I trust these companies to only make the right kinds of shows and movies when they reduce the numbers? No, I do not. <laughs> and that, that, that is my issue. Well, one of them said, uh, 
all these kind of anonymous people that was quoting the pieces. He goes, guess what the streamers want now? They basically want what network shows were 10 years ago. Netflix would kill for a Big Bang Theory, which is why you get those weird, like, films that seem like they've been made by AI, mm-hmm. where it's just sort of Chris Hemsworth is a spy. <laughs> There's people. a woman. There's a woman. Anita Armas is probably sort of slumming. And it's just a kind of like and like a non-movie. Mm. And they seem to do gangbusters. Um, and they get seen by a lot more people than like Roma or The Irishman. Mm. But the weird thing as well, like some of the Netflix movies have been very good. So what was it? I watched, is it called Do Revenge? And that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. It's less than a streamer. You will also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning and some fabulous merchandise. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Mm-hmm.